Good afternoon once again to all our listeners and thank you for joining us for another Al Alatea Foundation interview and to our special guest today, Pierre Terzian. Welcome, bienvenue and thank you for taking the time to join us for what I'm sure will be an excellent interview. Many of our listeners will recognize Pierre as the founder and CEO of Petro Strategies, which is noted for its publications on energy and also its consulting work. He's also a former Al Alatia Award winner. So welcome, Pierre. It's a pleasure. Uh, Pierre, since you founded Petro Strategies in 1985, you seem to have covered the whole possible range of oil, gas and electricity industry topics. What topics are you focusing particularly on now? And is your current interest more on energy transitions in the context of uh, combating climate change? And what else is getting much attention? Well, it's uh, energy transition, of course. Uh, transition is at the center of all discussions. Uh, what is interesting here is to uh, realize that uh, uh, the discussion about energy transition was enhanced, uh, encouraged after the pandemic, especially, and uh, also after the election of Joe Biden in the US. Uh, these two events uh, made the uh, discussion uh, about energy transition even more uh, intense than before. Uh, U.S. Democrats uh, believe deeply in uh, climate change and uh, they said that they would uh, uh, make uh, this uh, subject uh, integral part of uh, not only of their internal policy, uh, uh, economic, uh, social policy, but also an integral part of their foreign policy. And uh, they are now uh, playing again a leading role uh, in uh, the G7, for instance, or other uh, places uh, in uh, uh, energy matters and in climate uh, matters. So, uh, of course, uh, uh, the focus is on energy transition uh, uh, clearly. Yes. Yeah, major focus, Pierre, uh, as you quite rightly said, especially at the recent uh, G7 meeting and uh, was mentioned, of course, in the final communique uh, as well. Yes. Um, yes. Let's uh, move on to or start uh, with the oil and gas industries. Have we, for example, reached peak oil yet? Well, peak oil now is a matter of years. It's not uh, anymore a matter of decades. It may happen uh, next year. It may happen in 2025, whatever, uh, we will definitely meet uh, peak oil uh, sometime uh, before 2030, it seems. So uh, this is a big change. Uh, now uh, the, the peak oil horizon is be before us. It's here because in uh, such a, uh, uh, such a um, uh, difficult uh, uh, matter as the transition, energy transition is, Years are really, really, it's a very short period of time. Even decades are short. What about years? It's short not only for uh, consuming countries, it's short also for uh, producing countries to, so that they can 
reorient their economies, prepare for the after oil era, the post oil era. Uh, so the, the I think the, the main uh, event here to notice is that peak oil is definitely a matter of years, not anymore a matter of decades. I have to admit to have uh, looked up the exact definition of peak oil. So if peak oil is the um, hypothetical point in time when the global production of oil reaches its maximum rate, yes. after which production will gradually decline. So does that imply, does that um, also apply to peak gas or is that a different subject because of its role as a relatively clean transition fuel? Um, and uh, and the forecast of increased gas demand from developing countries, coupled, of course, with population growth, causing pressures to quite literally electrify in Asia. So uh, with that all that in mind, when will we reach or are we likely to reach peak gas? Uh, peak gas uh, may happen uh, a few decades after peak oil. Yes, uh, two or three decades. Uh, no, no uh, I cannot say, of course, exactly when. Uh, gas has uh, advantages compared to oil uh, in order to compete uh, with other energies. Uh, and uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, here we can say that uh, what is really interesting is to note that uh, even if gas is uh, much more cleaner than oil and much more cleaner than coal, there is a political will. Uh, in some rich countries and also in some uh, organizations like the International Energy Agency to fight not only against oil, but also against gas. Uh, now, not all rich countries are agree on this, on the fight against gas. Uh, for instance, Japan uh, does not agree with that. In Europe, uh, many countries do not agree with this approach, but uh, uh, there is definitely a political will uh, to uh, fight against gas uh, uh, in many rich countries. So uh, peak gas uh, will come sometime after peak oil, uh, let's say two or three decades later, but uh, we must take that into account definitely. Yes. Uh, and how would peak gas possibly be affected by climate change actions, do you think? Well. The problem here is that uh, at least in the beginning of this century or two, three decades ago, uh, hydrocarbon producing uh, countries and companies, especially those uh, with uh, high gas reserves of production, did not uh, understand the importance of uh, uh, fighting against coal. They did not, they did not focus enough on uh, the fight against coal. Uh, uh, coal is the main source of energy, uh, uh, of uh, climate change. Coal is the main source of climate change. As this, this was recognized uh, a few days ago by the G7 ministers when they met uh, to prepare the G7 uh, summit, uh, they said, uh, in their uh, final uh, communique that coal was the main source of uh, climate change. Now, uh, we knew that, everybody knew that. 
And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, gas-rich countries, gas-rich companies did not find against coal uh, uh, a, a few decades ago uh, so that gas could have better changes, better chances of uh, 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 alternate energy source. Now, it's a little bit late, but it's not too late because still gas has uh, many big advantages compared to, to uh, coal. And uh, uh, I hope that uh, uh, things will change in the coming uh, years. Uh, even if there is a real political fight against gas as well as against oil. Well, uh, better late than never, eh, Pierre? Uh, <laughs> one one yeah. of the subjects you have returned to often is the role of OPEC and now OPEC Plus. How do you see OPEC's role changing over the coming year? Or, or will it just gradually lose relevance? Well, um, I started following OPEC uh, matters uh, when I was a student uh, at the university. So that's uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, and uh, after that, uh, you know, many things happened, wars, revolutions, etc. And sometimes people used to talk about uh, the end of OPEC. Uh, will that be the end of OPEC? For instance, the war between Iraq and Iran, etc. I never believed that it would be the end of OPEC because uh, all these uh, countries needed OPEC because they needed oil revenues and they couldn't have oil revenues, they couldn't defend oil revenues without OPEC. So I always uh, thought and wrote in petro strategies that uh, OPEC would survive. Uh, now, I think that there is a real danger for OPEC. Uh, with the peak oil before us, uh, the situation will change completely. Uh, when consumption of oil will start declining sometime uh, during the 30s, next decade, let's say. Nobody can be more precise, I suppose. And then competition will start between uh, uh, countries uh, having big oil reserves and uh, wanting to uh, produce these reserves, sell the reserves. Uh, especially because they will have, most of them, uh, will have the cost advantage. So uh, they will not need OPEC anymore. On the contrary, they will, uh, uh, they will be in competition against each other. While OPEC is an uh, organization of cooperation, of uh, market regulation, uh, preserving the market equilibrium, etc. No, so, uh, yes, uh, sometime during the 30s, I think OPEC will be in danger. Yes. Well, you've um, also written about the effect of more diversified energy sources on the uh, rentier, the uh, commodity rich economies. Are difficult times coming for these economies or will their low costs of production save them, do you think? Well, these economies, of course, can still rely on oil and gas. Uh, I cannot see uh, them uh, closing the fields while they have huge reserves. They will still use it. But it will be difficult because there will be uh, a whole international environment uh, 
imposing some limits on uh, producing and consuming uh, coal, gas, and oil. So they will have to switch more and more in, for, to clean energy sources. Some of them have started, some have not. And uh, it's interesting to see that uh, the countries that have started, uh, I'm talking about uh, oil and gas producing countries, right? It's interesting to see that uh, countries that have started to diversify their energy sources uh, with nuclear energy, solar uh, especially, are uh, those countries which seem to be more prepared for the post-oil era than the others. Uh, uh, the most vulnerable countries uh, are at the same time the countries which are not diversifying not only their energy uh, uh, mix, but they are not diversifying their economies. Uh, now, some of them have uh, historical reasons, like for instance, if we take uh, Iraq and Libya, Iraq uh, is a destroyed country. Wars, sanctions, uh, it's a destroyed country, right? Uh, when I was in the university, again, I remember this period of time, Iraq was uh, a developing country, really a country which was on the road for development. Uh, but after the, the wars, uh, things have changed. Uh, three big wars. Uh, now let's take Libya, which is a more recent case, but with civil war, many destructions, that's also a very vulnerable country now. Uh, take other countries which are not diversifying their economies, not diversifying their energy mixes, like uh, uh, Nigeria. Nigeria was a very rich agricultural country before uh, oil. Uh, uh, Venezuela, because of political uh, instability. Uh, Azerbaijan, because they don't have a diversified economy. Uh, Kazakhstan, etc. So, uh, interestingly, these countries are not diversifying these economies and not diversifying their energy mixes. Now, um, uh, we talked a little uh, about green futures. Uh, yeah. Major international oil companies, uh, I would think pretty much all facing major challenges from their shareholders to persuade them uh, to curb their emissions and become more climate friendly. Can you comment on this and, uh, and tell us how you think this may force a response from national oil companies as well? Well, uh, the world is a real fact and the world we, in which we are living is uh, led by uh, rich countries, developed countries, not only in terms of economic uh, development, uh, but in terms of uh, think tanks, uh, new ideas, elaborations, new technologies. They are leading the world. They are leading the subjects of discussions, they impose the subject of discussions. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, NOC is uh, developing, uh, producing countries on a, in, a, in a weak position. Uh, take the latest example of the IEA uh, report on so-called net zero uh, report that uh, 
Uh, this is what we have. We must do if we want to limit uh, uh, climate change uh, uh, in, uh, in accordance with the Paris uh, Agreement. Uh, for the first time, uh, the IEA, which until that time played uh, a hidden political role, started playing an openly political role. Uh, so openly political that uh, many uh, member countries uh, protested against it. Uh, of course, uh, producing countries also protested. But uh, uh, I, I really, uh, I'm not very optimistic. I'm not very optimistic that uh, things uh, will change. Uh, uh, some oil producing countries, some oil producing companies uh, have a chance, chance uh, have a, a probability, uh, uh, but not all of them, not all of them. Right. Well, uh, let's move on to hydrogen, which yep. uh, is being talked about, as you know, as the new so-called, in inverted commas, clean fuel. It's a conversion. Uh, is a conversion to a hydrogen economy possible, uh, perhaps for difficult industries which require high temperature energy? And when do you think it will make uh, true financial sense for companies to invest in green hydrogen and what will be the factors that drive those investments? Uh, hydrogen is a new era for, for this new uh, research topic. Uh, it's not yet mature. Uh, people, many, many people do not know that uh, hydrogen is not a source of energy. It's an energy vector, like electricity. Electricity is not a source of energy. Right, uh, electricity, electricity is produced by energy sources like natural gas, for instance, or oil or coal, whatever, transports. And then when we consume it, it converts back to energy. It's a vector. Uh, hydrogen is uh, much comparable to electricity. It's an energy vector. So the pre first question to ask is, how do we produce hydrogen? If we produce hydrogen out of clean energy, okay, it's a clean energy vector. Then you have to transport it. And uh, imagine the whole infrastructure we need worldwide to transport energy through uh, hydrogen. So, uh, uh, we have to uh, ask the second question. First question, how do we produce? And uh, second, how do we transport it? These are not yet resolved problems. And uh, I'm surprised to see very serious organizations main pre making predictions about hydrogen without taking into account these uh, uh, very serious problems. Uh, let me take one recent example. Uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was in uh, April, the World Bank published a report saying uh, that uh, no, LNG is not the way to uh, fuel the shipping industry. Uh, we should do that through hydrogen. Now, it was a shock because uh, people said, I mean, it's unbelievable. To get there, it's imagine that we we will fuel huge ships with 
quote unquote electricity. Right? Uh, and I don't know who prepared this report, but uh, <laughs> they never they never thought about the feasibility of it. Uh, now let's go back to LNG. Why LNG is a good way to fuel uh, the shipping industry? Because not only it's cleaner uh, than uh, fuel oil and diesel, etc. Not only it's a direct source of energy, not like hydrogen. It's not a vector. It's a source of energy. So uh, much less l losses. Uh, when you burn the direct uh, energy source, you, you don't lose uh, so much energy than when you transport it, etc. And then uh, there is a very interesting case. People are now working on uh, uh, carbon capture and storage and liquefaction uh, from LNG on ships used to fuel the shipping industry, and then and then uh, put the CO2 in depleted gas fields, etc. This is a, a very interesting uh, uh, research, uh, full of promises, uh, feasible, technically speaking, practical, practical, very practical, not very costly. And I'm sure that uh, when the International Maritime Organization will be obliged to uh, uh, impose some sort of taxation on the CO2 uh, in the shipping industry, this alternate way of uh, fueling uh, shipping industry will uh, get uh, uh, many big advantages. So even very serious organizations, when it comes to hydrogen, make uh, very uh, surprising uh, mistakes. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you expect hydrogen produced by green electricity will one day become possibly a reserve fuel rather like uh, a grid battery? It can complement uh, other uh, energy uh, or fuels. It can be useful in light transportation. It can be useful in uh, even aviation for planes, but there are limitations, as I said, uh, because of uh, the fact that it's a vector, not a source because we need uh, huge grids accommodation. Uh, so there, the hydrogen will definitely play a role, but uh, it will take time, a lot of time, and uh, it will be a limited role, I think. Uh, you've worked or consulted with various national organizations and governments to produce national energy plans. Perhaps as we move towards COP26 and uh, the, well, the difficult um, energy transition timetables, various governments are re-looking at their plans. What advice would you give them at this time? Well, uh, the first and most important thing uh, is to keep in mind energy supply security. This is the most important thing. Uh, planning on energy uh, uh, needs, first of all, to keep in mind that we must secure energy supply as clean as possible for the longest time possible at the lowest cost possible, etc. If we forget that, 
we go into trouble, big troubles. It may be economic problems, social problems, and even political problems. So uh, when I see this uh, uh, hurry, the people hurrying to uh, uh, find new transition ways, new energy transition ways, without taking into consideration uh, this important factor, which is energy security, supply. Uh, uh, sometimes I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm saying, where are we going? I mean, <laughs> it's very dangerous. Uh, let's, let's take a new case. A few days ago, I heard in Germany, uh, the leader of the Green Party, uh, uh, and, uh, according to some poll, I mean opinion polls, uh, she has a, a chance of being the uh, next chancellor uh, to succeed to uh, Mrs. Merkel. Well, she said, if we uh, are elected, we will get to net zero uh, by uh, uh, 2035. That's 13, 14 yeah, yeah. years. Well, it's impossible to do. Yes, but it's never impossible. forget how cheap politicians' promises always are. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's in a, a country like Germany. When you hear things like that, shit, you you think that uh, energy, uh, you think that energy transition, climate change, is not anymore a scientific matter. It's getting more and more political matters. I mean, uh, it doesn't care what I say. What is important is that I get elected, and then after I will I will do whatever I will do. I will tell you that uh, okay, uh, my experts made a mistake. I cannot do it. Uh, <laughs> yes, this is very dangerous road. When when a, a serious matter like climate change, like energy transition, uh, stops being a scientific. Uh, problem, scientific subject, and becomes a political subject, then that's very, 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 very dangerous. Uh, I absolutely agree. Um, I think that's all we have time for today, very sadly. Uh, on behalf of the Alatia Foundation, I'd like to thank you very much for joining me for this interview and providing the Foundation with your excellent insights, advice, anecdotes, and much more. And I look forward to hearing from you again in the future. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you, Stephen.